All right, what's going on? Welcome to Canal and Bell. Danny Canal, Rajah Bell is out today, but no fear. We got a full boat of topics, guests, and other stuff we want to get to on this Monday. We got Ryan Wilson going to join us in just a second. Chip Patterson's going to do a little college football with us a little bit later in the show. But football is here. We finally have a game to talk about with the Hall of Fame game taking place this week. Everybody's in camp. So, with that being said, let's get to our NFL insider, Ryan Wilson, joining us now from right here at CBS Sports HQ. Ryan, how are you doing, man? How pumped up are you because we actually get a game this week we get to watch? I'm, I'm ready, Danny. It, all the talk about the offseason goings on, and you know this is a former player. There's not a lot going on unless someone gets in trouble uh, in late June through right around this time when training camp starts. So now we're talking about football. We're talking about players to watch, the rookies coming in, of course, the injuries that come along with uh, returning to training camp, and then all the storylines. So, yeah, let's go. Let's do this thing. So, Ryan, one of the bigger storylines across the landscape has been the number of holdouts we've seen. It feels like it's epic. Like, it feels like it's at an all-time high. Um, and you've got a couple running backs that are holding out. You have Melvin Gordon isn't showing up to the Chargers camp, and you have Ezekiel Elliott uh, holding out of the Cowboys camp. Camp. Which one of these do you think gets a deal first? I think it's Zeke by a landslide. Uh, not necessarily because he's the better player. He is a little bit better than Melvin Gordon, without a doubt, but because he plays for the Cowboys. Jerry Jones wants to win now. He had his introductory press conference in Oxnard, California a few days ago. And he made it clear that he loves his football team. Now, he says that every every summer, but he really means it this year. I feel like Stephen Jones, his son, who is a uh, COO there at the Cowboys, said back in the Combine that we understand that we have to pay Zeke Elliott probably in the Todd Gurley range, which is 14 and change a year, million dollars. And that's exorbitant. And no other team, and that includes the Chargers, is probably willing to pay a running back that much money. But here we are. We have Dak Prescott needs to get paid. Amari Cooper needs to get paid. And Zeke Elliott is a huge part of what the Cowboys do offensively. Listen, I think they could get by without Zeke Elliott paying him. I think he also has every right to hold out because he understands the leverage that running backs have, and it's not very much. Uh, um, Melvin Gordon, on the other hand, he's made it clear, even before Zeke Elliott didn't show up in Oxnard for training camp, that he wants a new deal. He can hold out in training camp, and he might even hold out during the season and pull a Le'Veon Bell. His situation is a little more tenuous. You have Phillip Rivers, who's entrenched there as a quarterback. He's going to play for... 30 or 40 more years. Ekelar, we saw, was able to sort of carry the load. Justin Jackson, undrafted rookie free agent several years ago, was able to carry the load when Gordon was injured. So it's going to be a little tough for him to get a deal. But I think Zeke is in a good situation in that Dallas wants to pay him, and it'll probably get done, I feel like, in the next few weeks. Ryan, I feel like I'm always player first. Like, I want to take care of the players, get them as much money as they can. But then when I look at it from a sheer business standpoint – and the position that these guys are playing, I totally understand if owners and front offices want to take a hard-line approach. Like, and I would always go back and say, all right, well, what would Bill Belichick do? Do you think there's any chance he would pay one of these running backs if they kind of hold it, held out on him? And I'd say no, because he would be willing to make that tough decision. And what's kind of surprising about this is that the Steelers last year with Le'Veon Bell took the hard-line approach and said, you know what? You want a new deal? We're not going to give it to you. You can sit out the entire year. And he did. And they were fine without him. Now, granted, they didn't make the playoffs. They didn't have the season. But it wasn't because they didn't have Le'Veon Bell. They still got pretty good production, which is where I wonder if these teams are going to cave. I, and, like, I hope they do. I hope Zeke gets paid. But the Cowboys actually have a lot of power over him for how long they hold him. Like, I'm surprised that these running backs are taking this stance because they just don't have that much power. 
Yeah, Zeke's situation is interesting because he has two years left on this deal. Gordon only has one, and Zeke is taking a step ahead and saying, listen, before this gets out of hand, here's what I want to happen. And he hasn't come out and said that explicitly, but that's certainly what you imagine he's thinking because he's not there. And you make a great point, Danny. Le'Veon Bell didn't show up last year. The Seals would have paid him $14 million on that franchise tag, and they would have paid him actually more than what the Jets paid him with less guaranteed money, by the way. But here's what happens. James Conner rolls in. He's making half a million dollars a year, the exact same productivity. And they didn't make the playoffs, you're right, but it wasn't because of the running back. And that opened a lot of people's eyes. Also opening people's eyes, Todd Gurley there on that list, number seven. He made $14 million and change on average in that new deal he signed. I guarantee you the Rams are not happy about that deal because he got hurt at the end of the year. There are questions about his knee now. And then you have to wonder, how does that affect Zeke and how does that affect Melvin Gordon? And that's the calculus that uh, those running backs are trying to figure out now. Right. I, there's a lot of excitement surrounding a lot of teams. There's new coaches. You get your draft picks in there. One of the most boring teams, I think, <laughs> this offseason is Cincinnati Bengals. Like, in a lot of, you know, rounds revolves around the quarterback, the lack of star power. Maybe it's because of all the excitement we're seeing in Cleveland. They're completely flying under the radar, but I kind of get it. Like, I don't, I don't see a reason to be really excited. And then they take this injury that happened over the weekend to A.J. Green. You're like, man, well, what do they have to look forward to? Maybe that's a new contract for A.J. Green. Like, I don't see anything to be excited about the Bengals. But when you look at Green specifically, is he a guy that deserves another big deal? Because he's probably one of the most underrated receivers because they haven't been very good recently. Yeah, and that's a tough question. He's making $15 million a year on average right now. He's got one year left on his deal. He's about to turn 31. And then we talk about the injury, the ankle injury he suffered in Dayton, the first day of training camp for the Bengals. It was on a turf field. The field was not very good. And Tyler Boyd, who just signed a big deal for the Bengals, and he's one of their few bright spots in terms of young players, said the field wasn't very good. He said there's pebbles on the field, there was dirt, and they were slipping and sliding, running his routes, and it's not surprised that A.J. Green got hurt. Um, so that's a concern. And it makes you wonder, why is the NFL making these teams play in these destinations? Well, because they want to spread the game and, and bring the game to the fans. They get all that. But just like we saw with the Hall of Fame game a few years ago, the teams would, they couldn't even play the game. The field's in such bad condition. So if you want to do this and it makes sense in terms of goodwill, sort, goodwill towards fans, make sure the stadium's in the right shape. Make sure the field's in the right shape. Now, in terms of whether we're going to pay A.J. Green, what's he, what are you going to pay him? You have to pay him $16 million and change. He'll be like a top three paid wide receiver. Is he in the same league as Odell Beckham? Is he in the same league as DeAndre Hopkins? Those are the questions you have to ask. And at this point in his career, where he hasn't played a lot every other year, he's missed about four or five or six games. Can he produce? And given that this team looks to be rebuilding, I don't know if you pay him, even though he probably is is worth it. That's the situation the Bengals are in. Yeah, I think so. I, I totally agree with you on on those points. You know, it was just talking about the Bengals being boring. Um, I don't know. I might if I was the New York Giants, I might rather have a boring offseason, the offseason they've had, and kind of the early training camp that they've had. With the Golden Tate suspension, with the Coleman injury, like this team is just getting dinged every which way. How rough do you think it could be for the Giants this season? Yeah, it started at the draft, and we were all shocked that Daniel Jones was drafted six overall. No fault of Daniel Jones. He wanted to get drafted. He probably didn't expect to go that high, but Giants fans were immediately taken aback, surprised, did a lot of booing, took it out on Dave Gettleman and Pat Shermer, and things have just gotten progressively worse from there. Uh, they don't have Odell Beckham. And Shermer actually said after they traded Beckham that uh, Sterling Shepard has a chance to be a number one wide receiver. Well, he broke his wrist or he, he broke a, a bone in his hand. He'll be out. He's week to week. He could return for the start of the season, which I suppose is good news. But he wasn't even a bona fide number one. Corey Coleman was a former first round pick. He has not lived up to that. 
uh, when he played with the Browns and certainly not last year with the Giants. So maybe that's not a huge loss, but there is no plan B. Evan Ingram is the best wide receiver on this team, and he's a tight end. I would argue the second best wide receiver is probably Saquon Barkley, and he's going to be carrying the ball 500 times. So I, I don't know what the plan is, and we've been saying this uh, well before the draft when, when they took Daniel Jones, which is fine, but they're, they seem committed to Eli, Man, uh, Eli Manning. excuse me. He's 38. I don't know how long this can sustain itself. I don't know how Dave Gettleman is going to save his job. Pat Shermer seems to be in a difficult position because he doesn't have any playmakers. And I don't care if you're Bill Belichick. You're not going to win football games with one-and-a-half players. And that one-and-a-half player starts with Saquon Barkley. So there's a lot to work out. They're not going to work it out quickly. They look to be – the good news is they're not the worst team in that division. I think it's the, the Redskins. So they look to be the second-worst team in that division. But that's not going to get you very far. And this could be the Eli Manning uh, swan song tour, whether he likes it or not. There's been something unfolding that's really bothered me. Uh, and you mentioned it before, talking about Daniel Jones and the inauspicious start that he's been off to. They picked him sixth overall. I didn't agree with it. You didn't, not many people agreed with it, but he's had to overcome this perception that he's just this completely inept quarterback. And you can see, you can have whatever belief you thought of whether they should have had Dwayne Haskins or whatever the case may be, but he's been booed at a Yankees game. Um, he's been criticized by pretty much everybody and their brother that's out there. Um, at his first practice, you've got reporters taking video and just putting out the bad plays. And then like, to me, that's not a, it's not fair to Daniel Jones and it bothers me. Um, and I get it's part of being a professional. He makes a lot of money. You should be able to criticize him, but like from the Giants fan base, it's even coming from them and he's easily become this punching bag and kind of the butt of all jokes like you know you, you see him airmail a check down it goes out it comes viral online it says here's a look at the Giants future at quarterback is there anything Daniel Jones can do to change that perception of him in the near term Danny you and I talked about this back in Nashville during the draft that we both like Daniel Jones we just didn't love him at number six and that's not his fault I feel like if he had gone in the middle of the first round where they had that number 17 pick no one would have said a word so, again, that's sort of what are you doing, Dave Gettleman? Why are you setting this kid up to fail? There's a lot he can do to have success, I feel like. He's doing the right thing by keeping his mouth shut. There's nothing he's going to change by talking. If you took the Baker Mayfield approach right now in terms of being outspoken, it would only blow up in his face. And I think you go out there, you make the plays you can make, you get better each and every day. You're not going to start right away. So that's actually a good thing for him. And you maybe even follow the 2004 Eli Manning blueprint where Kurt Warner starts the season in seven or eight games, you come in and take over and ease yourself into it. No one hated Eli Manning back in 2004. In fact, uh, Giants fans loved him for the most part. And, and I feel like uh, Daniel Jones is a much more athletic version of Eli Manning. He ru- It wasn't game last year against UNC. He rushed for almost 200 yards. So he looks goofy. He looks like a Manning, but he's actually extremely athletic. He doesn't have the best arm strength in the world, but you don't need to to be a, a top-level quarterback. I think there are a lot of things he can do to have success. And there's the beginnings of the of, of players around him and Saquon and Evan Ingram, but Odo Beckham would have been a huge help for him, without doubt. Eli as well. So I think he just has to take it slowly. Hopefully he does not force him to the field. And, and I think by the end of the day, Giants fans will come around. But again, it, it's under, you understand why they're angry, and you also are sort of confused why Dave Gettleman was so insistent on taking him number six overall when it looked like he would last at least midway through the first round. One of the uh unintended consequences. I totally get why the Giants traded away Odell Beckham Jr. Like, I understand it. I know he's this unbelievable talent, but sometimes it's just a bad fit, and, you know, it just it doesn't work. And, I, you know, now I'm sure they're – at some point, they're probably looking at some of the highlights from Browns camp thinking, man, are we sure about that? <laughs> but, I mean, they felt like he was a cancer in the locker room. That's what it, that's what it felt like for them. Um, I think one of the un- unintended consequences is going to be Saquon Barkley. He's going to have a much tougher time – 
when they can cramp safeties in the box. And now the injuries at receiver are really going to make it even tougher for Saquon. How hard do you think it is going to be for Saquon Barkley this year, considering quarterback, you know, older quarterback, lack of weapons on the outside? Is he going to be able to have any type of the success he had last year as rookie of the year? Danny, I would say one thing about Odell. I'm fine with trading him as well, but just don't give him that huge contract months before you do it. That's what sort of made people pull their hair out, or in my case, you know, scratch their head. Um, Ryan, you know what I do think? I just wanted to jump in. I think the Giants wanted him to be a different person. Like, remember remember right before the contract, Odell kind of kept his mouth shut, and he was like, I'm going to show them, I'm going to be a pro. And then almost as soon as he signed it, he did the expose on ESPN and he had Lil Wayne sitting with him and he started questioning the play calling. Like, and I think, I think at that moment, the Giants felt betrayed and they were like, we're not keeping him long term. Like, I do think their intention was to keep him long term. That's a good, that's a good point. Lil Wayne, uh, got him <laughs> run out of New York, basically. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but back to Saquon. Uh, yeah. As for Saquon, that, that's also a fantastic point because, he must be looking at Zeke Elliott and Melvin Gordon and going, look, if you're going to run the wheels off me, what does this mean for my long-term success? Because he's 21, 22, 23. He was amazing last year. He was the offense on a team that was really, really bad. And a lot of it had to do with Eli and the offensive line, and we know all that. So if you're asking more of him with fewer playmakers around him, what's that going to look like? Because as you point out earlier, Danny, Defenses know what to expect now from Saquon. They know what he can do. And with one fewer option to concern, concern themselves with the Nodell Beckham, that's one more player in the box, one more player that can cover a Saquon if he runs out, runs a route or whatever. So that, that's an added pressure on him, more workload on him, higher likelihood he gets injured because, because of it, and then shortens his career, uh, less money down the line. So these things sort of pile up. And, and I just wish they had a, a better plan in place post Odell Beckham. And I get all the things we just talked about with why Odell's no longer there. But it's hard to replace that productivity with literally no one. And those guys that are even there are injured. So that's a huge burden for Saquon. And I do wonder in the back of his mind if he's wondering, not only is Zeke Elliott doing the right thing, or is this something he's going to have to do in a year or two in order to make sure he can, if he plays five years because he's been burning to the ground, how will his life be after that? Week four, the Redskins go to New York to play the Giants. Who do you think the quarterbacks are going to be? I've, I've talked about this from the Redskins' perspective, and, and their schedule is incredibly tough to start the season, even tougher than the Giants, I feel like. I think there's a reason Colt McCoy was put on this earth, and it was to take a beating until the franchise quarterback is ready. So I don't want to see Dwayne Haskins out there unless something's gone horribly wrong. But the problem is, if you're the Redskins, Jay Gruden doesn't have a lot of time. He's going to get fired if, things, if they start slow. So if they start 0-3, he may have no other choice but then to put Dwayne Haskins in there and hope for the best. But they have fewer playmakers than the Giants. They're worse all around than the Giants. Now, look, you could say a year ago with Alex Smith, who struggled uh, before he got hurt, that team was 6-3. and three. They were a very bad 6-3 and three team, and no one had any faith that they were going to turn things around. Uh, I think in terms of the Giants, four games in, I feel like Eli will still be there unless he just lays three big eggs. And we talked about it earlier, Danny. I don't want to rush Daniel Jones out there only because it's more fodder for, for the fans to unload on him, uh, and it's unwarranted, I feel like. I feel like if you bring him in midway through the season, both him and Haskins, it'll be better for their short-term and long-term careers. 
Yeah, I think the week, the first, the week four matchup, I do think you see Dwayne Haskins and I don't think you see him. So I think that could be his first start because you mentioned it on the road against Philly, home against Cowboys and then the Bears defense. I mean, you want to throw any rookie out to the Bears defense, but week four, like what better chance for the Redskins to say to Dwayne Haskins? Hey, remember that team that passed you and you were ticked off and you go show them, show them what they missed out on. Like it'd be a great storyline, but I don't think you'll see Daniel Jones on the other hand, unless there's an injury to Eli or just some, uh, you know, like, as you mentioned, atrocious start to the season. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day. In the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount Plus. Uh, back with our guy Ryan Wilson talking about the Rams, the LA Rams. So I don't think it's a, it's a big, uh, surprise. They actually give, uh, Sean McVay and Les Needs extensions together, lock up the foresee- uh, foreseeable future with what was really kind of the hottest head coaching name over the last couple years in the NFL when we saw every other franchise trying to find the next Sean McVay. Um, but are they going to be able, are they on a team that you look at this season and say, yep, they're going to be back right in the Super Bowl where they were last year? Or do you think we see a setback with the Rams? Well, it's interesting, Danny, because I actually like Seattle to win that division right now. But I love what Sean McVay's done there. I mean, it's not hard to remember that back in 2012 is when Jeff Fisher was a coach from 2012 to midway, actually late into the 2016 season. They never had a winning record under him. Their offense was dead last in 2016. And you have to go back nine years before 2012 to find the last time they finished above 500. In comes Sean McVay. They win 11 games the first year. Last year, they won 13 games, I think. They've won 75% of their games under Sean McVay. He's taken that offense from dead last to number six in 2017 to number two last year. And he's taken Jared Goff and making, look, he was a terrible quarterback as a rookie. Not entirely his fault because of the situation and his time in the league being just a few weeks, months, and year. To taking him to one of the best quarterbacks productivity-wise in the NFL. And you may disagree that he actually is that player, but that speaks again to what Sean McVay has done. So now the question is, can he continue that success? And, and I feel like Sean McVay can, but I feel like this Seahawks team is a little better this year than the Rams, a little better than they were last year when they made a, a playoff run with Russell Wilson. And, and I think they're the favorite right now. But, I mean, look, this could all change after two weeks of the, of the NFL regular season. That said, there are 30 teams, maybe even 31 teams, that would take Sean McVay right now if he were out of a job. And uh, this Rams team is set for a while. Now, the defense is a, is, a, is an issue. They have some things to replace there. Um, Todd Gurley is an issue. But I feel like we've been talking about running backs all morning. You can work around not having a great running back. You need a quarterback. You need someone calling in plays, obviously. And Sean McVay has done that in spades. And, and I think he's been an unbelievable find for the Rams. Yeah, and Les Snead has done a great job building the the team, the structure around uh, Sean McVay to give him some of those weapons. I mean, last year... I thought they took a lot of very calculated risks by bringing in Marcus Peters, Aqib Tlaib, Gotta Come Sue, like bringing some guys in that had some character issues in the past. 
but trusting them with Wade Phillips and saying, all right, we're going to give you guys this opportunity. I felt like it was a swing for the fences type of offseason for them, and it paid off getting them to the Super Bowl. So I think that's why Les Snead got that you know extension as well. When you look at Jared Goff specifically, there was some rumblings, and you never know with some of the stuff you hear, especially after a loss in the Super Bowl. Maybe it's just frustration, whatever it is. But there were some rumblings that Jared Goff maybe wasn't the quarterback of the future, the long term, that he had tapped out and maxed out his potential with Sean McVay. Are you a believer in Goff long term, or do you think this is sort of a make-or-break Jared Goff playing on his rookie deal? I'm a believer in McVay long term. I'm sort of of the opinion that um, Jared Goff has some things to prove. And I think he is a product of McVay's system. And look, man, that's not a bad thing. And that will get him paid somewhere else should the Rams choose not to pay him. But we, we've talked in the past about the, the Carson Wentz setup and the Russell Wentz, uh, Russell Wilson setup where those guys were on their rookie deals and the Eagles and the Seahawks made Super Bowl runs because they weren't paying all that money to franchise quarterbacks just yet on their second deals. Now, do you want to pay Jared Goff a huge amount of money um, simply because he's a product of what Sean McVay has made of him? Or do you want to roll the dice that you can find another quarterback, whether it's a bridge quarterback for a year or two, or someone you draft and pay them uh, fewer dollars and pay other people? Because you hit on it, Danny, that last year they traded away a lot of draft picks to get the Marcus Peters and the Khalid, uh, Tlaibs and, and the Sues. They didn't have a first-round pick this year, and um, they had some other holes in their draft. They, they weren't able to address the things they wanted to address. So that's the math they have to do. I'm not sold on Goff. His numbers jump off the page at you. He didn't have a great postseason, but then again, neither did Todd Gurley. But I feel like if he runs through the course of his contract and you still have Sean McVay and McVay says to you, um, I'm fine going in another direction, I don't even ask a follow-up question. I'm like, all right, where are we going? Because that to me says that Jared Goff is a product of what Sean McVay has done, but he is not a franchise transcendent talent like, say, Carson Wentz who went after him in the draft. You know, Ryan, I think it's going to be really interesting when a team does look at a quarterback that's pretty good statistically, all the things you just mentioned in Jared Goff, and a team says, yeah, we're good. Like, we're going to move on in another direction. Because if you look at the trend, it's a pass-happy, offensive-minded NFL. So a lot of quarterbacks are putting up pretty good numbers, right? And I think what's going to be really a tough decision is one of these teams to say, all right, it's more than just stats. We need a guy that can that is special. If we're going to commit $30 million a year to him, it's got to be somebody who can take us to that next level. And it'll be a really hard decision for some team to make, but I think we're going to see that sooner rather than later, and maybe it's with the Rams, uh, with Jared Goff. Because I do wonder if he's tapped out. Like he's, We've seen the best of Jared Goff. I don't know if it gets much better. Uh, with Todd Gurley, we've seen some pretty impressive feats from him, but we've also seen... What, you know, is speculated, it's the knee issue, it's injury related. Uh, how much concern are you for Todd Gurley that he's going to be able to achieve that, that MV, he was in the MVP conversation not that long ago. Do you think we see that again out of him? No. In a word, no. And again, this isn't Todd Gurley's fault. You don't, you don't blame the guy cashing the checks, you blame the guy writing the checks. So he got paid and he deserved to get paid. But he also has a knee injury, and our guy Pete Briscoe thought it was some above-the-neck issues in those last few games of the postseason, too. I'm not sure about that. I think we know the knee issues are, are real. Our guy John Breach um, wrote about that uh, at the Combine, about how there were conversations that he might have arthritis, and the Rams didn't want to talk about that. But he is not the guy he was at the beginning of the last season. You look at that Saints game, he struggled. I think he had 10 yards rushing. The Super Bowl, he had 35 yards rushing. 
And listen, when you bring in C.J. Anderson and he's doing basically what Ty Gurley's doing, that to me is a red flag. <laughs> Maybe you don't need to pay these running backs um, what they feel they're worth. And again, I'm not going to begrudge anyone for wanting to get paid, but this is the reality of the NFL. So the Rams now have Malcolm Brown. They drafted Daryl Henderson in the third round. You don't use a third-round pick on a running back when you have limited draft picks anyway, and you're confident that Ty Gurley can do what Ty Gurley's been doing early in his career. And look, a running back by committee approach makes sense. There's no reason to run the wheels off of Todd Gurley if he has some tread left on that tire. And we just talked about Jared Goff needing all the help he can get. And again, all the other playmakers that are running uh, running routes down the field. So Todd Gurley has a place in this offense. I don't think he's ever going to be in the MVP uh, conversation again just because you can't put him out there 20, 25 touches a game for 16 games and expect what we've seen previously. And you know the crazy thing about all this? Maybe Todd Gurley just needed an offseason to rest. You know, maybe maybe he was worn out. Maybe he had a an issue with his knee, and maybe some time off might have healed it. But I'm kind of with you. I I hope we see that because I think he's an incredible player. I just don't know what we're going to get. One of the question marks around the Rams this year. Hey, Ryan, good stuff, man. Appreciate it. Can't wait for the Thank games. You. All right, what's going on? Welcome back to Kennell and Bell. Danny Kennell hanging out with Chip Patterson. I love it, man. This means college football is right. right here. It's right around the corner. Um, I wanted to do a whole thing on media days and why I think they suck so bad. Because mm-hmm. uh, they really... They've changed a lot. They've gotten almost corporate. Um, and you know, of course everything changes. And I hate, I hate saying back when I played, but it was so different. It was so much more laid back. And both from a player's and a broadcaster or reporter or whatever you want to call it, it's much harder for everybody to do their job. Like as a player used to go, it was more laid back. There wasn't so much pressure and scrutiny on every single word you said. And then I got more face-to-face time with reporters where you could actually kind of develop relationships. Absolutely. And you didn't have um, uh, it being broadcasted across the country. And right. you're 100% right because I was at the ACC football kickoff and I was like, it feels like we are in a makeshift movie studio. Right. There's a bunch of busy bees and we're shuffling the players and the coaches. We're throwing them up in front of the bright lights. And the answers they give to questions are the kind of answers that you would have under bright lights with a whole bunch of cameras on you. Cliches. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, careful, cautious. And in 2011, I remember in Pinehurst just sitting at a table like this right next to Dabo Sweeney just spending 20 minutes where no one was interrupting us. We were just talking about his team. Yeah. You know? And he, he was talking about Chad Morris and Taj Boyd and the steps that he had taken. And there's just no chance that you would get that kind of access to Dabo now that we are in this like fully uh, – and like you said, you, you don't want to just call it corporate. Right. But it truly does have to do with – Network, a broadcast, like we are controlling every aspect of this. And uh, even, from beginning to end. and even I think a lot of the teams don't even stay overnight. Like they'll come bring the private jet in that morning, do all the stuff, and then they bounce. Absolutely. Where, you know, it used to be like a cocktail hour, a dinner, a golf outing, you know, and you get to actually spend some meaningful time. I've, uh, it was one of the first media days I covered as a media member was in Greensboro, ACC, and it was Jimbo Fisher's first year as the head coach. He had taken over for Bobby, so there was a lot of pressure on him. I remember we were sitting outside at this um, cocktail reception hour. All these coaches are mingling with different media members, and you got, like, the conference commissioner and some of the ACC offices there. And I I never forget because I was like, oh, okay, this is a little different. Jimbo was kind of off to the side, and he was on his phone the entire hour. (laughs) He was sitting there on his phone. And I'll never forget, I was like, I asked him later, I'm like, oh, did you have a family emergency or something? He's like, what are you kidding me? He's like, I was recruiting. 
He was on the phone calling players during, cause that, and that was the mindset he had. Right. Realizing, hey, that might be what it takes as a talent acquisition business. He was working on the recruiting there for sure. So ACC media days have changed. You know what hasn't changed? Expectations at Ohio State. Mm. Um, still a team. It's either Michigan or Ohio State. I do feel the other thing about media days that bothered me is we have this group think and it's all Clemson at ACC. It's all Alabama, Georgia at SEC. It's all Texas, Oklahoma at Big 12 and it's all Ohio State, Michigan. Um, you know, there's other teams that play in there, but these are the favorites. True. And especially at the Big 10, yeah. I think that you, we should be paying more attention to the teams outside of Ohio State and For Michigan sure. because as we're looking at that conference, like there is not a single team that should feel very confident about its chances to win its division or even win the conference. And that kind of, you know, up in the air mentality, we, we should be taking a harder look at the personnel of Penn State, the personnel of Michigan State, because Ohio State, like with all of the questions that they have to answer and all those other quarterbacks are gone. Joe Burrow's at LSU. Tate Martell's at Miami. What if anything happens to Justin Fields? Right. Are we just going to act like everything's going to be rosy for Ryan Day's offense without him there? What if he's not as good as we think? I mean, that's always also, my, also like expectations for Justin Fields are off the charts um, to where, and this I saw this this morning. I was actually going to look it up to make sure I got it right. Heisman odds. Who do you think would be a better pick to win the Heisman Trophy? Justin Fields, who hasn't taken a snap yet at Ohio State, or Jake Fromm, who has had three years of success at Georgia, has brought his team to the championship, who's won, you know, had all the success. Who do you think should have the better odds? Jake Fromm. Right. But it's not. Justin Fields is 10 to 1. Jake Fromm is 12 to 1, which blows my mind. I get, you know, I, I, maybe he's more the, electric, you know. And would then, any Ohio State quarterback, like, let's go like <laughs> yes. EA Sports style, where like, would, would quarterback number 10 for Ohio State have the right. same odds right. to win the Heisman Trophy? Right. You see that. Um, I also think there should be some question marks about Ryan Day. I mean, Urban Meyer is one of the, you know, you can say uh, whatever you want about his off the field issues, as Jim Harbaugh liked to talk about at Big Ten Media Days, but he is one of the greatest coaches that we've seen in all of college football. And I think we're just making this big assumption, oh, it's going to be a smooth transition to Ryan Day. He's just going to step in and things going to keep rolling the way it is. Maybe it does, and he does have a tremendous amount of talent, but I think there's a massive amount of unknown of how Ryan Day is at the helm as the head guy. Urban Meyer went 83 and 9. Right. 83 and 9, never lost more than two games in a single season as Ohio State's head coach and had a national championship in there. He had a national championship and an undefeated season when they were ineligible for the bowl game. So Ohio State fans, right off the jump, they were getting titles. They were getting undefeated seasons. They always were in the mix for the Big Ten championship. And to think that um, that is just going to keep going. That is unsustainable. I think back to Chip Kelly when he was actually the head coach at Oregon is the most unsustainable like flash of success that a coach is going to have at the Power Five level. Like, right. Of course, it fell off. It was not going to continue, especially at a place like Oregon that doesn't have the history. Ohio State has the history to continue to compete for Big Ten and national championships with Ryan Day. But if we're talking about the Ryan Day expectations, I almost feel like. No, he is not going to meet the expectations because the expectations that are being laid before him, it's not sustainable to continue that success. No, I don't think so either. It's it's and it's always tough to be the guy that follows the guy. Like you almost want to be the second one removed. Mm-hmm. You know, like you let that guy be the fall guy, and then you can be the hero that comes and brings it back. Uh, so well, I mean, it's a bet, right? Ryan Day. Like, Ryan Day has been this, you know, rising star. I don't. I'm sorry. Air quotes is mean. He is a rising star in <laughs> yes. the industry. Dan Mullen identified him as a graduate assistant for Urban's Florida team when Dan Mullen was offensive coordinator. Chip Kelly obviously pulled him up into the NFL. Uh, 
everyone has has given the the checks every box is checked this guy is just a rising star in the industry and you know what he is he is a 16 year old that got a brand new sports car when he turned 15 and a half yep and now it's like well don't crash it and sometimes that happens sometimes you get tickets sometimes right. or, you know other times you're just the kid that gets all the girls and you do ride off into the sunset so that all remains to be seen their schedule is pretty fascinating uh, one of the teams that's on their schedule is another team that has a massive amount of hype around it with doing a lot less a team that was four and eight last year. And that's Nebraska. Um, is there any chance? I mean, and Nebraska played them pretty well in Columbus last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a game where you could see that being competitive. And if Ohio State slipped up there and lost, you instantly the outcry with, oh, my gosh, we made the wrong hire would be coming. Nebraska can win the Big Ten West. Nebraska can defeat Ohio State. And I think that you look at Nebraska's season last year in two parts, 0-6 and, and 4-2. and two. So you're buying the Nebraska hype. Yeah, absolutely. Because there have been a lot of people that have been tentative on it, saying, oh, wait, this is too much too soon for Scott Frost and Adrian Martinez. You're all in. Yeah, absolutely all in. I kind of am too, although there's a part of me that says we're getting ahead of our that's season. Your natu- that's your natural contrarian. It is, you, oh, it totally it, yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, you feel I it said, coming, and I, so you're like, hold on, hold on. i got to jump on the other side of this. I sent out a tweet during the season. It was during the Ohio State game. And the reason I remember this tweet specifically is because Gabrielle Union retweeted it. <laughs> that's, that's, great that's engagement. Great, too, right, exactly. Great, engagement. great fan engagement. I said... Nebraska is going to compete to win the Big Ten championship next year. Yeah. And, so, and then, but now the more, and I don't want to say they just did it because of my tweet, but the more people that jump on, it's kind of like Texas. I was the same way about Texas. And now I'm like, Ooh, everybody's jumping on Texas. I kind of feel the same way about Nebraska. I'm just a little bit tentative on where I was back then. Now, granted, Scott Frost turned it around to UCF instant, like really right. got things going the fast, but I think that side of the division, is going to be fascinating to see how it plays out because I think it's ultra competitive. I don't think it's Nebraska and it's a done deal. I think it could be a really a lot of depth uh, at that side of the division. Do we rule out Illinois? But then basically any of the other six you might yeah. consider. Oh, for sure. Uh, like if if Purdue, hey, the explosion with Jeff Brom last year, and then he decides not to go to Louisville. Like I feel like Purdue fans already think that they've made a bowl game and won a Big Ten West title <laughs> right. just by the fact that Brom didn't leave them after that breakthrough season. So. Any one of those teams, Iowa, Purdue, even Wisconsin, after what was a little bit of a disappointing season last year, they start in the top ten. They finish as an eight and five team at the end of the year. That was a Jonathan Taylor's still a very good tailback, yes. and and he absolutely could run wild this season. And Alex Hornibrook wasn't exactly. I mean, I know he was a constant stable That's force. Your man now. Quarterback. I mean, that is your not, man's. I'm now. a James Blackman guy. So right. I don't know. Hopefully, he's a backup. Uh, he was a good quarterback, but. Just because you're changing quarterbacks doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It could be a good thing Correct. for Wisconsin. The thing in the Big Ten that kind of scares me is there – you mentioned Wisconsin. Like perennial teams that you always sleep on. Wisconsin you always sleep on. Michigan State you always sleep on. Northwestern we always sleep on. Iowa we sleep – we've slept on all of them. And all the conversation was Michigan, Ohio State, Nebraska on the other side. Like, and I just feel like it could be one of those years. I hope so. Like, I kind of get and tired of And some of, of it is Michigan-centric where we say, okay, you couldn't beat Urban. Urban's gone. That game is in Ann Arbor, yep. and you've got this team at a place where this is when we should be seeing some big breakthroughs. I mean, expectations are uh, so high for Ryan Day, I don't think he can meet them. Expectations for Jim Harbaugh are high, and I think he can meet them. But failing to meet those expectations Ooh. and losing at home to Ohio State at the end of the year, after what did they put, like a six-deuce on him yeah. in Columbus last season? what did they season? do, though? They're not going to fire Jim Harbaugh. Like, I get there will be a hot seat effect. 
But they're never going to fire Jim Harbaugh because he's a Michigan man. You know what I mean? You are probably right that it's not going to lead to a, a change in coaching, but it will reverberate and it will be a talking point throughout the entire country. Yeah, for sure. That's going to be an outstanding game to keep an eye on too. The ACC, what kind of odds would I have to give you? Because the odds I'm seeing of potentially winning the ACC aren't anywhere near long enough for me to pick a team other than Clemson. Miami's at 14 to 1, Florida State at 16 to 1, and you can get either Virginia or Virginia Tech at 18 to 1. I would say you'd almost have to add a zero to like it'd have to be 140 to 1 for me to pick a team outside of Clemson to win the ACC. I just think they're that dominant. I would take Syracuse. Shut up. Oh, well, at their odds, yeah. Cause they have a longer shot odds. And, and they play Clemson. And they've always, week, week three. And they've been in the Clemson carrier killers. Dome. Yeah, they've yeah, yeah. Clemson killers. That's not a bad. Cause that angle is basically saying, all right, um, you know, in that way, they, maybe they both finish seven and one in the Atlantic division. Yep. You get some with the tiebreaker. I do think going seven and one is going to be tough for the Syracuse team, but I'm a big Tommy DeVito guy. Yeah. Big Tommy DeVito guy. Right. Listen, the, the pride in New Jersey was up there yes. at the ACC football kickoff. Someone asked him what he'd been working on this summer, and he said, my tan. I love I mean, it. Dude, oh, the, I kind of like that. The swagger on this guy is just through and through. He said that, like, you know, trust was really big. He was Dino's recruit. He yep. knows the offense, and that that's a rhythm offense where you kind of do need to be a little bit of a gamer to stay upbeat and stay up tempo. So I, I really like their defensive line as well. I think Alton Robinson is one of the best defensive linemen in the ACC. Like that is that is the team that I've been circling. Where I'm saying Clemson, there's a reason why those odds are like one to six or whatever stupid number that they've got there. Clemson will win the ACC. Yes. But if we're just power ranking, I've got Syracuse as my number two. One of the biggest surprises to me that was Dino Babers didn't leave no. after the season he had. I mean, usually that's a stepping stone job. You know, if you get any offer, you're going to be like, sign me up. I'll take it. And he ended up staying there. So I think that's a huge move for them. Um, speaking of the ACC, the conversation really around the conference has been who's the second best team. I know Virginia was picked by the meet. Did you vote for Virginia? To yeah. Win? You did. Yeah. So you like them. You like their chances more than Miami. Absolutely. Really? So why? So does that mean? You're down on Miami, or does that mean you're that high on Bronco Mendenhall and Bryce Perkins? I am very high on Bronco Mendenhall and basically an entire BYU staff that just uprooted their life and went to Charlottesville and brought their farm animals with them. Like, <laughs> literally, Bronco moved his farm animals in a trailer from Utah all the way to Virginia. And, and there is some beautiful land out there uh, around Charlottesville, some some good wineries. Yes, there are. to check them out. Yep. But I, I think that the – and I, I hate the overuse of the word culture, but he really did – do some building. Yeah. You know, he tore everything down. He remember he had those comments. There's only 27 guys on this roster that are ACC caliber. Yep. And Bryce Perkins is a, he had a relationship with him before, gets him to transfer in. And the, the term that I've been throwing around for UVA is Bronco bully ball. They're going to have really good defense. And Bryce Perkins is a dual threat player, but he's not, he's not leading you to a 45 to, you know, 35 win, but he could be the one that gets you those key plays and those key first downs to ice a 27 to 21 win. And Miami is still so solid on the defensive side and just a big shrug for me on the offensive side where I'm, I'm not going to buy into Tate Martell. I'm not even sure that Tate Martell ends up being the starter throughout this season. And those uh, uncertainties for Miami is probably why I'm a little bit more down on them. I know that Dan Enos, who's the offensive coordinator there, got a lot of credit for uh, Jalen Hurts' development at Alabama as a downfield passer. Yep. I'd give Jalen Hurts a lot of that credit, too, on the work that he put in to make himself more effective in that part of his game. So uh, a lot is yet to be seen offensively for Miami, where while Virginia is not explosive, 
I do believe they're at least uh, efficient and consistent enough to win that division. Man, that Florida game um, in Orlando, week one, week zero for the Hurricanes feels so big. They're a touchdown under. underdog. I will take the under. Take the under in the right game. now. Yeah, especially with. The, I wonder what it'll be. Uh, if it's if it's anything above thirty five, I'm going under. I, I think I would, I would lean your way too. Um, Tate Martell, did you watch QB one? No. Go watch it. And tell me what you think. Okay. It's really like I have to. I have to make this disclaimer anytime I give an opinion on Tate Martell because I didn't like him so much from QB1. Okay. And I get he's a high school. It was a couple, it was a few years ago, but he was maybe the mo- the cockiest, punkiest. There's another word I want to use, but I can't. We're just trying to clean it up. Um, quarterbacks I've ever seen. Like, and it's really, t- and then I haven't seen him really mature that much with some of the comments he made about Justin Fields and how he shouldn't transfer because, and then he leaves. Um, but according to, uh, practice this morning, he might be the starter. You know why? Why? Jaron uh, no, Williams went down? No. Manny Diaz held an Oklahoma drill between the quarterbacks, and he had Tate Martell square off against Nikozi Perry. Martell put Perry to the ground. So maybe that's what you're going to get out of that. Snapped him. Right? He's a tiny, he's a tiny <laughs> exactly. man. Uh, and that's just uh, – I think maybe it is that type of battle, but maybe they'll determine their quarterback based on the Oklahoma drill. I don't think so, though. Welcome back to Canel and Bell, doing some college football with Chip Patterson here. Uh, love the conversation we had, talking about Miami, Clemson, some of the ACC, Big Ten. The Pac-12 has gotten so irrelevant so fast. Like, it's not that long ago that, you know, you had Heisman Trophy winners, mm-hmm. you had national championship contenders. Now they don't even get teams into the playoff. They have a massive perception problem, so they're trying. Larry Scott, the commissioner, is trying to think outside the box. I absolutely love them moving the championship game to Las Vegas. In fact, I've already told Port, our boss, we need to be there in person <laughs> to make sure we cover it. Right, yeah. right. Um, you know what I don't want to cover, though, are the 9 a.m. local kickoffs that they've also proposed as a way to get more exposure as opposed to the late-night Pac-12 after dark games. Um, your thoughts on some of the Pac-12's moves by Larry Scott? I think that they fall in line with what I'm sensing is a, a general belief among those university presidents that we are not going to try to keep up. All y'all on the other side of the country, in the SEC and the ACC, the way y'all are selling out for football, the way that you're doubling down on your investment and you're just letting the networks run everything, you're letting uh, whoever you've got your media rights deal with, they're telling you when kickoffs are and, and you bend to their will because that's how you generate revenue. I think that the Pac-12 on some deep philosophical level has decided we're just we're not going to play keep up. And now what we are seeing is the on-field effects of that, where they are falling behind in recruiting. Uh, they are not able to compete when it comes to playing for national championships. And it's not just the absence from the college football playoff. I mean, it is a very consistent uh, in these Power 5 versus Power 5, you know, first three weeks of the season, high-profile matchups. They're, they're not winning. You know, like Washington won the Bowl Pac-12 last eight. year. Well, I mean, it was brutal. Yeah, and they and they couldn't get anything done against Auburn in the kickoff game. And you know, Oregon's going to play in another one of those. And I'm I'm not going to be picking the Ducks in that game. It's a general, um, in my opinion, it is just sort of a deep philosophical decision that we're not going to play. We're not going to participate in the arms race. Right. And think about this. So the 9 a.m. local time kickoff, which. For the players, goodness gracious, oh. you're getting up at 4 a.m., right? 4 yeah. or 5 a.m., yeah. probably? Yeah, pregame meal is always four hours before right. kickoff. And Mike Leach had some interesting comments. Uh, who's, he's never afraid to hold back. He said, do any West Coast fans actually think that it's a good idea to have 9 a.m. games? Somebody asked him, what time would prep have to start? 4.30 a.m. That's what time your wake-up call would be as a player. 
I know from my college habits, um, it was a struggle to do anything before 8 a.m. Right. I can't imagine a kickoff at 9 a.m. And then from the fans' perspective, like, oh, man. they already get ripped. And I've done some Pac-12 games, and it is lackluster fan. You know, can you talk about passion of the SEC? It is not even close how far behind they are any other team. And if now you're going to ask them, what about the student body? Oh, like ask, the, ask the like the students to go who can go to the games free. They're going to be like, forget it. The vi- they will sleep through the whole game. <laughs> yeah, the vibe is going to be a rec league soccer game yes. where it's just going to be the parents and only the parents, <laughs> and they're going to have their coffee and donuts. And when the game is over, we're going to give them the orange slices and we're going to go home. Chip Kelly came out and he said. Uh, we would rather have the players get the game over with and be able to go on about their day rather than sitting around waiting for 7 o'clock local time, 10 o'clock Eastern time to come. And get the game over with and go about your day, I think summarizes the way the Pac-12 feels about football right now. Right, which is just, it boggles my mind how they could think that's a good idea. Now, I've also heard the other side of the argument has been it's going to be very um few and far between these games like there might be one or two a year right and they also would be more geared towards the teams that are in the mountain time mountain time so you might see utah colorado um playing so it's 10 a.m local but again in college there's nothing you could do to get me out of bed that early you know just to go watch a football game and if you're playing it i still think you're half awake i do think it's an interesting dynamic because what would you find more attractive because I do think the 10:45 is a. I think it cost Christian McCaffrey the Heisman Trophy. Oh, like just losing, not not, not being, being in, that, in the like yeah. people are asleep on the East Coast. So would you? Because I say why not change to make your 12:30 make 12:30 local, which is what you see a lot on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. You'd be 3:30 on the East Coast. I get you'd be going against CBS SEC game of the week. I get you'd be going against a lot, you know, ABC, ESPN game, the Fox game. There'd be a lot of traffic, but at least you'd have some eyeballs watching you as opposed to either people sleeping or your team isn't ready to go. You know what I mean? For sure. And I think you also look at how people consume sports. They're not going to the games. You know what they're doing? They're staying home and they're having a big screen on one, an iPad on one game, an iPhone on another one, and maybe their buddy's other iPhone. You know, like... And by the way, I love that. I know Pat Fitzgerald came out against that in his statement about college attendance. Yeah. But it also means that a college football junkie in Utah can be watching the SEC. And that is beautiful. Like, that is good for the national sport of college football. I think that I would much rather be able to be in that spot where the 5 o'clock local time kickoff is the 8 o'clock game. Yes. And you're able to get that. And it becomes like a a self-perpetuating issue for the Pac-12 because their games are not good enough to get picked for the 8 o'clock slot. Right. Yeah, and so like that is the slot that should be perfect, but the teams aren't good enough, and right. and the general like investment and perception problem just continues to exist. It is. I wonder if they can get things turned around uh, anytime soon. You know, it is cyclical, and we have this Clemson Bama rain that it's hard to see an end to. But you wonder if all it takes is if Oregon got hot this year and ran the table, and Justin Herbert's a top five pick. Maybe that's or what Urban it takes. Meyer to USC. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in two Game years. Changer. You heard it here first, right here on Canel and Bell. Chip Patterson with the massive hot take. Urban Meyer, USC. You'll see it.